0: If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Though Paul is here addressing his opponents in Corinth, he might as well be writing to your next-door neighbor or to the guy who cuts your hair, or to the college professor you sometimes chat with at the coffee shop, or even to you. This could be a letter to anyone and everyone, because Paul is addressing, at least in this section, perhaps the most fundamental friction that the Christian message produces in the world. A basic foundational tenet of our faith that is at complete odds with the wisdom of this life. People don't rise from the dead. That's the thing that your neighbor, your barber, and your conversation partner believe. And they cannot accept the announcement that, well, actually, sometimes they do. Now, there are, of course, other things that keep them from Christianity. Sure, there's... The socially unacceptable teaching, the regressive sexual ethic, there's all kinds of problems. But if they could believe that Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who lived in history, literally and bodily rose from the dead, then every other problem would fade away. But they don't. And they can't. After all, the protest goes, people don't rise from the dead. Now I know I've told you about Lee Strobel before, many of you will recognize that name, Um, an atheist investigative journalist whose wife started secretly going to church behind his back and then one day surprised him with the news that she had become a Christian. Now shocked and wanting desperately, as he put it, to get his wife back, he set out using his investigative journalistic skills to disprove Christianity. And to do so, he decided to debunk the resurrection, knowing that everything in Christianity hung on this claim that ought to be easily falsifiable, that Jesus had literally risen from the dead. Now, of course, if you know the story, you know that Strobel's efforts failed. His research, in fact, became the book The Case for Christ which argues for the believability and historicity of Jesus' actual, physical resurrection from the dead. And I couldn't help but think of the case for Christ this week as I read Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, this section of scripture is almost a sufficiently compelling argument for the historical truth of the resurrection in and of itself. Because remember, this is Paul writing this. Paul, who was until very recently Saul of Tarsus, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's Paul's description of himself in Philippians 3. Notably, he was a Jew, The best Jew, he says. In other words, one of the people least likely to accept that a human person was God incarnate. After all, the Jews were unique in the world at that time in their insistence that there was just one God and that there could never be another. Indeed, Saul was engaged in the hunting down and killing of people who, to him, had made this very heretical mistake, worshiping the man Jesus as God, because he had risen from the dead. Luke shows us Saul's fervor in Acts chapter 9. Just before telling the story of his conversion, Saul, Luke says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, still breathing threats and murder. This is Saul of Tarsus. And this is the man who became so convinced of the actual truth of the resurrection that if he says... That he says, if it wasn't true, we Christians are most to be pitied. Paul lived almost contemporaneously with Jesus himself. He was a little younger and didn't follow Jesus when the Savior was alive. Paul himself laments that fact, calling himself one untimely born. But he was present at the stoning of Stephen, and had extensive interaction with Jesus' disciples, notably arguing theology with none other than the apostle Peter himself. I say all of that to say that if there was something funky going on with the resurrection story, Saul would have known it. There had been no time for any kind of legend to grow up around Jesus. This is the same generation. There was no time for the location of his grave to have been forgotten. The people to whom Jesus had appeared after his resurrection were still alive. His disciples were all still alive. Indeed, I can imagine, though I don't have any direct evidence of this, I can imagine that Paul himself, as the persecutor, Saul, would have spent considerable time trying to figure out, if he could have, And make widely known, if he could have, the truth about what had actually happened to Jesus' body. Had the Romans done something with it? Or the disciples? You can bet that if there had been any chicanery, Saul would have spent every ounce of his energy finding it out. And spreading that news with the same evangelistic fervor with which he later spread the gospel. Saul didn't want the resurrection to be true, but Jesus was in fact raised. And of course, to top it all off, Jesus appeared personally to Saul, changing his name and his life and calling him into the ministry of announcing this resurrection to the world. So Paul now wants to pass on what he knows to be true To the doubters in Corinth and to your neighbor, your barber or your coffee companion and to you, too. Indeed, he says, if people are not raised from the dead, then Jesus was not raised. And if Jesus was not raised, then Christianity is a farce. And we, among all people, are most to be pitied. He's saying, imagine the person that you pity. You are way more to be pitied than that person because of this farce that you believe. But, Paul shouts from the rooftops Jesus was raised. It's all true. And there is eternal life in that truth. And here is an amazing thing there is eternal life but not just for the risen Jesus. Because Paul's making another point here. Christ is raised, and that's good news. But that's only the first part of the good news. Because notice that Paul isn't just merely saying that Jesus rose from the dead. He is certainly and absolutely saying that. But he says this interesting thing about Jesus being the first fruits of those who have died. Here's how Paul writes it. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits. Of those who have died. Notice that he's saying that the dead are raised. In general, Paul is broadening the scope of the good news far beyond the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning point, ground zero of this gospel explosion, but the ramifications cascade like waves across the entire world, forward and backward in time, even up to today even into this room, even into your life. Paul is saying that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can say accurately and for sure that people in general are raised from the dead too. That actually happens. And the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, as Paul calls them, not only proves it, but makes it possible. In addition to being a remembrance of the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, the Passover celebration was also a great harvest festival. On the calendar, it fell when the barley harvest was to be gathered in. And the people were commanded by God to do this in gathering in a particular way, as a preparation and a kind of deposit or guarantee for the full harvest to come. You can find this in Leviticus chapter 23. The people are commanded to bring several sheaves of barley, the first fruits of the harvest, before anything else is picked. They bring these several sheaves to the priest. And he would wave the sheaves before the Lord, asking for a blessing from God on the rest of the harvest, still to be brought in from the fields. Now those... First fruits blessed by God were a symbol of the larger harvest to come. And in the same way, Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus is a sign of the resurrection of all believers, which is also to come. We will all, because of the proper ingathering of the first fruits, Jesus Christ we will all be gathered into God's storehouse. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will all, we who are covered by His righteousness and washed white in the blood of the Lamb, we will all, because He was raised first, we will be raised too. His rising is the guarantee, the deposit, That secures your rising. In and on account of Him, you are raised to new life. As Paul says if Jesus is not raised, if those first fruits of the harvest have not been brought in, you are most to be pitied. You are still in your sin, you are dead. You are, for instance, Jairus' daughter, lying in that darkened room with a silent and mourning house around you. You are Lazarus in the tomb with his sisters weeping outside. But the first fruits have been offered to God. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so you in Christ are raised from the dead too. And Jesus is here to do it right now. Get up, he said to that little girl. Come out, he said to Lazarus. Wake up, he says to you. Wake up, rise from the dead. Let my light shine upon you. In Christ, you who were dead are now alive. So we have good news on two fronts this morning. Double good news. First, Jesus did in fact conquer sin and death and rise from the dead on the third day. It really did happen and you can rest assured in it. But then, Good news. His death and resurrection gets applied to you. His victory over death becomes yours. And it means that you are raised from the dead too. God raises people from the dead. That's what he does. That's what we gather here on Sunday mornings to celebrate An empty tomb. Sin and death are no obstacle to our God. In fact, they are the medium in which He does His best work. Sin and death are what our God uses through Jesus' life and death and resurrection to make righteousness and new life. Our God uses sin and death to make righteousness and new life. And Jesus' work for you Overcoming your sin and death with his righteousness and life were completed on that criminal's cross outside Jerusalem and then guaranteed by his empty tomb, the first fruits gathered in from the harvest. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The angel asked those women on Easter morning. Jesus isn't here. He is alive. He is alive forever. And you, given new life in him, will live forever too. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we, you and I, are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Jesus is alive, and in him so are you. Thanks be to God. Amen.